I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm Ben Horton. It's great to have you with us again as we're approaching the end of February 2022. We've got a really interesting episode for you this week. Very excited to say that it's technically our 100th episode of the podcast. We've published more than 100 episodes on the Undercurrents feed so far, but as you'll know, some of those are the mini-series and the kind of bonus content we've had for you. But this is very much our 100th standard episode. If you've got this far and you've listened to a lot of the hundred so far, thank you very much and, and thank you so much for being part of our audience. We don't get to keep making this if people stop listening, so we really, really value your attention, your engagement. And if you ever have any topics that you'd like us to cover on the podcast, please do get in touch with us through the Chatham House website or by emailing me at bhorton at chathamhouse.org. Just a quick note before we get into the content of this episode. As you're no doubt aware, a crisis has broken out in Ukraine over the last few weeks. As I'm speaking today, there are reports that the Russian military has actually invaded Ukraine at this point. The situation on the ground is changing very quickly. And I just wanted to note, really, that we're not choosing to ignore this issue in any way. We've not covered it on the podcast, partly because of the time it takes to produce each episode and the fact that the situation on the ground in Ukraine is changing minute by minute at this stage and we don't want to produce anything that is then irrelevant by the time it comes out. If you want to keep up with Chatham House's response to the crisis, then the best thing to do is to follow us on Twitter at chathamhouse.org or to check out our website where our Russia and Eurasia programme and a number of other experts have been contributing pieces throughout the crisis so far and we'll be able to bring you much more up-to-date analysis than we would be able to on this podcast. Obviously it goes without saying that our thoughts are very much with the Ukrainian people and anybody that's currently been affected by this crisis. So on to the episode that we have for you this week. I think it's a really fascinating pair of interviews that we've lined up for you. First off, you're going to hear from friend of the podcast, Yujia, who is a senior research fellow here at Chatham House. And she and I have a conversation about a recent article she wrote for the World Today magazine, which looked at China's emerging space policy and the prospects for a space race for the 21st century, I suppose, in some way. (laughs) And actually thinking through the kind of history of how China has engaged with space and technological innovation and development that that has brought to the country and the geopolitical implications of that. Then you're going to hear something quite different. I've been joined on this episode by two new co-hosts. Just for this episode, they're just dropping in as guests. We've got Yusuf Hassan, who you may recall is also the host of Africa Aware, our podcast on all things African agency. And he's joined by a recent intern at Chatham House, Annie Martirossian, to interview Professor Lee Major, who is based at the University of Exeter and is a leading expert on the emerging study of social mobility. And they really talk about this question of social mobility and class and equity in the UK context specifically, which I think is such a fascinating and and maybe under 
discussed issue. So I'm really glad that we're covering this topic. It's a bit of a departure from our normal international affairs programming, but I hope you'll stick with it and it really is worth your time. So on with the podcast. All right, so I'm back today in a very icy cold Chatham House Media Studio. It seems particularly chilly today, but it's kind of apt because we're going to move from one icy depth to another icy depth, which is space, the final frontier. We're finally covering this on the podcast. And to talk about space, and in particular China's approach to space policy, I'm joined today by Yujia, my colleague, senior research fellow in the Asia Pacific program at Chatham House, and friend of the podcast, of course. I think this is probably your fourth or fifth appearance. Well, I think it's my sixth appearance, and I was delighted to be back, and particularly back to this icy cold studio. This seems to be reminds me of what had happened before COVID. So, two years now, time flies. It's so nice to be back in the studio doing these. But anyway, we're here to speak about China's space policy, and we're drawing on an article that you've just written for the World Today magazine, which is part of your Beijing briefing series of columns that you're publishing with them throughout this year. Could you maybe tell us? What sparked your interest in focusing on space for this one? By the end of last year, and what happened was um, China filed a formal complaint to the UN Secretary General suggesting that Elon Musk, basically, by launching his commercial jet and therefore really crushing out the Chinese space shape after the outer space. So I'm just wondering, was that perhaps really the new frontier of the US-China competition has opened, and not just in the Earth, but also in the outer space as well. So we have both horizontally and also vertical competition Mm. between the two giants. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about why these sorts of collisions between satellites are potentially going to be becoming much more frequent? Well, I think the trouble is really depends on where do you launch your satellite. Is the issue on geography on the Earth that... You, once you begin to launch those, those satellites, and then that's you most co- concentrated in Northern Hemisphere. Mm. And that's where mm. both China and the United States are located. Mm. So once you send the satellite up space, over there, it just becomes increasingly crowded. And therefore, the Chinese space um, spacemanship or Elon Musk's SpaceX will have to change the orbit in yeah. order to avoid a collision against each other. So that's why I think China formulated a complaint and filed a complaint by suggesting that Elon Musk's SpaceX is trying to squeeze out of the Chinese space. Mm, Traffic jams. (laughs) Um, Well, traffic jams in a really catastrophic style. So we've seen this acceleration from China in recent decades on this whole kind of space exploration and technological innovation question. Can I just ask who the key actors are within China that are driving this forward? Is it is it very much a government or military kind of initiative? Is it state-led enterprises? Who's really the driving force behind this? Well, certainly the driving force behind this is a state-led department. So you have the China National Space Agency, mm-hmm. and then also shared by People's Liberation Army. So these are two joint organizations, joint institutions, uh, set the agenda for China's space developments. Mm. Around 11 billion of US dollars, which is the total budget for China National Space Agency, which is half of its equivalent US counterpart. Now, when it comes to the, the implementer, 
is the two led, um, two state-owned uh, enterprises led the, the implementation, yeah. namely China Aerospace Science and Industrial Cooperation, and also China Aerospace Science and the Technology Cooperation. Mm. So mm. these are the two implementers and try to deliver whatever the space program agenda that PLA and also China's National Space Agency has. Fascinating. Yeah. And also on top of that, and what we're having here is you have an increasing participation from a commercial sector, from private enterprises mm. sector, yeah. um, on the commercial satellite um, launches. So I think that's really an, a developing area for China as well. A charge that's often levelled at China surrounds this whole issue of kind of intellectual property and scientific research knowledge sharing. <laughs> and in other sectors of the economy, there have been kind of controversies around industrial espionage and, and these sorts of accusations being levelled at Chinese companies and, and institutions. But you mentioned uh, earlier when you were describing the history of, of Chinese space exploration that actually they're pioneering their own technologies they don't want to rely on gps and other such u.s creations is space an area where actually a lot of the technology and the innovation is indigenous to china in that sense or is there has there been a lot of kind of cross-pollination of ideas and research i wouldn't say anything is 100 percent indigenous yeah. anyway mm -hmm. so what you have is you have a whole group of chinese scientists and who used to study and worked in the United States and back to 1940s and 1950s mm. and then in the heightened period of McCarthyism and they, they required to return to China. And so these are the, the group of scientists really established the earlier stage of China's um, space sector. Yeah. And then lately you have more engineers and you have more space specialists and mm. return to China from the United States, from Europe and from any other part of the world and therefore build a space program mm. for the country. Bear in mind, this is a country producing around 50,000 engineers every year. So <laughs> to pick a few spe uh, space specialists is not a difficult task. No shortage of talent. Indeed. <laughs> Fascinating, yeah. So could you take us back a bit before we talk about this specific episode and the implications? Could you take us back, I guess, to tell us a bit about the history of how China has engaged with the space race and, and what has been its space policy up till now? Well, very interestingly, China is a newcomer for this uh, space race. So United States launched it its um, space program back to um, 1958 mm -hmm. um, as the first satellite. And 12 years after, in the heightened period of the Cultural Revolution, that China launched its first uh, satellite back to 1970. And ever since then, and China seems to play a major role in terms of launching satellites, but also not just launching satellites, also creating its own spaceship, as well as uh, develop certain technologies. So, for example, that China was among the three countries, the top three countries in the world, has collected a lunar sample, so mm. basically from the moon, and back, bring back to the Earth. Now, China is also sent an operator rover on the far side of the moon, as well as landing its so-called Jurong rover on, mm -hmm. on Mars mm -hmm. in 2021. So there's also a planned crude lunar landing by 2030. Mm. And including 18 astronauts already been developed, including two women. So that's to show you how advanced it is so far now for China as being a major player on the space sector. Mm. 
That's so fascinating. And and could you tell me a bit about what is driving this expansion into space by China? Is it about resources? Is it about the incentive to develop technologically, to innovate in that area? Or is it also partly to do with great power competition and prestige more than anything like status? You know, great powers can go to the moon and, and that's part of almost like a box ticking exercise. <laughs> Well, I think it's a combination of three reasons. And firstly, for very obvious reason that China, for any kind of technology, China sends want to have that pursuit of self-reliance. Mm. And therefore, China want to create its own space, uh, spacemanship and also satellites and so on and so forth. And also using its own orientation system. So China has this galactic Yinhe orientation system instead of using the GPS. So mm. not using GPS, which is developed by the United States. Now, it's that sense of self-reliance pursuit on science and innovation. So mm. that's one reason and China wanted to develop a very competitive space sector. So mm. that is really there back to the time of Cold War, when China has a really turbulent relationship with the Soviet Union, and therefore yeah. China wants to pursue its own technology. Mm-hmm. Now, second reason, it is also commercial reason as well. I mean, at the end of the day, China will become one of the I would say, launch pad for many other countries in mm. terms of the space satellite launches. For example, in among Af- many African countries, and China was one of the major provider for their commercial satellite launches. Mm. So there's also a profit reason. Now, very lastly, I think this is also for, a, I wouldn't say necessarily just a prestige, but more about great power competition. Mm. So China putting all of this in the context of US-China relations. China does not want to lose out as the world's second largest economy and they want to be part of the game. And then also China want to participate in terms of rule writing when it comes to outer space. Because at the moment, it is only United States and China and then Europe have the capability of having its own spacemanship over there. Just on that question then, to bring you back to the anecdote you told at the start about the particular episode that kind of sparked your interest in this... What was China hoping to get out of that exchange by writing to the United Nations, complaining about the, this collision with Elon Musk's more commercial private enterprise in space? What are they hoping to do? Are they, are they hoping to seek redress from the United States or are they hoping to begin a process of rewriting the rules to something that they would prefer? Or what were they hoping to achieve from that particular episode? Again, I think it's a combination of reasons. And firstly, for the most reason, it's a safety reason. And mm. China felt if the commercial satellites are going to crash together with the state-sponsored satellite, and that's going to be a major financial losses for China. Yeah. I mean, bear in mind that China National Space Agency operate under 11 billion US dollars compared with NASA, the US counterpart. Mm. That's only half of its budget. So mm. it's an enormous investment China be made and therefore want to seeking for return on investment even if it's based on state capital. So I think it's really first reason for the economic reason. Now, secondly, as you said, it's about setting the rules. Because what we have at the moment is on the Convention for, for International Outer Space. International Convention for Outer Space it is actually based on the state actor. It did yeah. not really include it in commercial actor, like, yeah. for example, SpaceX, mm-hmm. um, so on and so forth. So China would prefer really to revise the convention that would fit into the purpose of 21st century because that last the convention was written back to 1958 but then and then revised it several times but again the convention itself is non-binding and mm. therefore china would much prefer to have some sense of arbitrary power to be given to the international organizations and particularly an organization that is very much in favor 
by China's foreign policy orientation, namely the United Nations. You mentioned in the article the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which set some guidelines for the sustainable use of space back in 2019. Do you see China as very much supporting that set of rules? Is their vision for engagement in space one which is very much kind of rule-led and structured and there are systems and institutions? Or do you get the sense that there's also a part of them that wants to join a more sort of Wild West space race in the kind of Cold War sense? Well, instead of World West, I would put it this way, China wants to be in that exclusive club mm. that only belongs to China and the United States that right. be able to dictate the share jointly dictate the rules of the outer space, mm-hmm. or perhaps with European countries as well. But however, I think the limitation for China is that it is still remain a relatively early stage when it comes to its space sector and so on and so forth, despite all the achievements China yeah. has been made so far. So it's a slow progress. Now, secondly, it is about building trust, sharing scientific data. Mm-hmm. Now, in the current days and age on this turbulent US-China relations, I don't think either side are willing to share the data and exchange information in order to try to avoid that sense of collision. Because at the end of the day, if such a collision happened, it'll be really tarnishing the environment for the outer space which will really worsen the environment for any other future satellite launches for mm. many other countries. So equally, it's like a climate change issue. This is a public good provision. Mm. So if China wants to show itself would like to be a responsible player for international politics, perhaps the space sector is one of the sectors China could be taking lead to do so. That's really interesting. So I guess people could read this and think, goodness, this is kind of scary, but you're actually presenting space potentially as an area where there could be more collaboration, more cooperation on rulemaking. Do you think that you're sort of optimistic about the future of US-China relations in space, or do you think it is going to become a source of conflict potentially? Well, I'm less optimistic on the political front when it comes to talking the language of collaboration. But I'm more optimistic when it comes to the technicality of the collaboration between the engineers of two countries, because all of them have the wishes that reduce the level of space debris, mm. you know, one of the major challenges for launching satellites nowadays, firstly. And secondly, it is about pushing the human boundary that how much you can explore in the space sector. So I guess from that point of view, both the Chinese and American scientists are see the same thing. They want to testing this uh, technology poise and how far they can go. So in a way, it becomes a scientific innovation champion mm. that both Chinese scientists and American scientists are interesting to to climb. Okay, so this is clearly a really fascinating emerging policy area, and I hope we can come back and talk about this in the future. Yujia, thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. Thank you so much, Ben. Really delighted to return to here. And also, and then, well, next time I go to the Opera House to see Diva Curie, and I shall remember our conversation on China and space. Absolutely. That's what we need. And we should also flag that this is the first in a series of interviews we'll be doing with Yujia throughout the year to accompany her Beijing briefing series with The World Today magazine. And I would very much recommend that you check out her recent article, Beijing Briefing, Watch This Space, for a bit more information on what we've been discussing today. The link is in the show notes.
Okay, so I'm just going to interrupt our episode here for a quick conversation with the editor of the World Today magazine, Roxanne Escobales. Hello, Roxanne. Hey, how are ben. you? How You're, are you? I'm very well, thank you. Your debut on the podcast. Yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> I have a background in radio, so I'm really excited about undercur- being on Undercurrents today. The master at work. Yes. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and hopefully the first of many appearances. But we're just going to have a quick conversation about the new issue of the World Today, which includes the column with Yujia, who we've just spoken to about China's space policy. But the main theme for the issue is actually feminist foreign policy. Roxanne, could you maybe tell us a bit about what was the thinking behind that theme? What were you trying to explore? Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, The World Today is a bi-monthly magazine, so it stays live for two months. And we were really looking at, you know, what's happening in these two months that we can talk about. And Mm. of course, International Women's Day happens in March. And FGM Day happens in February. Uh-huh. Um, and so we were really, really wanting to focus on gender and how do we talk about gender in an international affairs context? And really, uh, it's a no-brainer. Feminist foreign policy, you know, it is actually like probably the, the youngest methodology when it comes to foreign policy. And it's actually pretty radical if mm. you think about it. So we talked to Marissa Conway, who is one of the co-founders at the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. And she's really looking at it through, you know, her experience in the center, working with a lot of feminist activists, but also with a lot of policymakers. Mm. And she just identifies, you know, this is now a crucial time in the development of feminist foreign policy to address some of the gaps um, and to seize some of the opportunities. So she sort of lays it out. Um, I've had somebody describe it almost as if it were a manifesto, which um, I think it, it does act like that. Um, but we also hear from Sofia Kaltorp, who is the coordinator for Sweden's feminist foreign policy. Now, they were the first country in the world under Margaret Wallström to launch a feminist foreign policy. That was in 2014. So not quite eight years ago, because it was in autumn of 2014. Um, and we, you know, were just looking at the course of their policy, the impact it's had and how they were able to operationalize it. Um, but we hear from Sofia on that. And then we also go to Mexico, which was probably the latest proper feminist foreign policy that's been launched mm. uh, in 2020. And that's the first country from the global south to adopt a feminist foreign policy. So we have a young uh, Mexican researcher looking at how it's an opportunity for Mexico to play a regional, a regional leadership role, um, actually addressing things like social inequality and economic inequality, as well as migration. Mm. Oh, it sounds so fascinating. And, and it is. it has been really interesting to see this whole issue of feminist foreign policy kind of emerge in recent years. And I guess there's always that kind of tricky trade-off between the sort of pure radical version of the policy platform and then what happens when governments start to adopt it and then you're, you're glad that they're doing it, but then obviously that comes with them interpreting it. It becomes more mainstream, but then potentially less radical. So like that was something that really came out with the Marissa piece, I felt. Absolutely. I think Marissa Conway tackles that in her piece. Um, but also speaking of radical ways of understanding traditional topics, um, we also have, um, moving away a little bit from feminist foreign policy, but feminist approaches to ending war. So we have the co-editor of a book called Feminist Solutions for Ending War, Megan McKenzie, Mm -hmm. out of British Columbia in Canada. She co-edited that book, and she's just looking at the different approaches that people are taking to find, you know, in different ways of defining war. Like, when does a war actually end? Mm -hmm. She knows a question asked. um, We think you know the answer, but actually it's rather surprising. 
Absolutely. And it is such an exciting issue and congratulations on it. And I, I really encourage everybody to go and read and download it. Roxanne, while I've got you here, I wanted to ask you something maybe a bit broader as well about the direction that you want to take the World Today magazine in. Obviously, you joined us in 2021 and you've published some great issues since then. But what's your overall take on the changes you'd like to make with the magazine and, and the editorial direction you're trying to put in? Well, first of all, I have to say it's such an honour to be working at The World Today. It's mm. 75 years old and it's published so many great thinkers of our time. Um, and I am really uh, feel privileged to carry on that tradition. But it will be carried on and it will be brought forward and it will be moved forward. So we're looking to feature voices from all over the world and also interesting perspectives that you just don't normally think of when it comes to international affairs. So at the moment, I'm researching how music and international affairs actually you know, intersect and overlap with each other. Mm. That's going to be coming up in the future. I don't know when. Watch this space. <laughs> so we're really looking to bring in fresh new voices from all over the world. So if you have an idea from your corner of the world, please do get in touch. You can find us on www.theworldtoday.org. Roxanne Escobales, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ben. And back to the episode. We're very lucky to be joined by Professor Lee Elliott Major, the UK's first professor on social mobility, on this discussion around the current state of social mobility in the UK and the impact that COVID has had on it. I'm also very lucky to be joined by my colleague from the Academy, Annie Martirosian, who is someone who has worked on social mobility within the university context and ensuring that universities become more inclusive spaces towards people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. But I won't introduce her any further. I'll let her do that herself. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yusuf, for the introduction. As Yusuf said, I am an intern in the Academy for Leadership at Chatham House, but also have a really keen interest in social mobility. So during my time at the University of Exeter, I'm currently in my final year, I founded the Exeter branch of the 93% Club, uh, which is a wide part of a wider network of university societies throughout the UK, represented under the 93% Foundation. The 93% Foundation is an amazing national charity aiming to represent and create opportunities for state-educated students and students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds at university. So I guess if any university students are listening to this podcast, then I can't recommend joining that enough. Thank you so much, Annie. I'm sure the 93% Foundation will be very happy about that <laughs> plug. Moving on to you, Professor Lee, it'd be great to hear maybe your journey towards where you currently are as the first professor on social mobility in the UK. I am, as you say, the first professor of social mobility that we know of there are a few more now actually that i've started a trend we think and when any, anyone says that i am the leading professor of social mobility my 16 year old daughter always reminds me that i'm the only one at this point anyway so it's a professional and personal passion this for me i am the first in my family to go to higher education it is true that i was a bin man but that was for a summer some of the daily mail headlines in this country have, have made me out to be a, a real rags to riches story if you like from bin man to professor but i am one uh, of an unusual type in that i uh, even among professors actually there are very few who come from what i'd classify as normal backgrounds it's not even disadvantaged, it's normal backgrounds. We might get into this a bit, actually. If you're looking at the very top of society, it's quite exclusive in terms of drawing from a very small swathe of society. So it's not just the most disadvantaged people that don't get access to those positions. It's actually the normal people that don't get access as well. You know, social mobility broadly conceived is the chances of climbing 
or falling down indeed the, the social ladder. I like to think of it as the sort of concept that background shouldn't determine how you end up in life, whatever you choose to do so i worry a little bit about the sort of very narrow narrative of social mobility that are the sort of the american dream sort of version where you know you pluck someone from a poor background and they become president or something like that that is an interesting element of social mobility and it's important that we have diversity of our elites but in many ways i'm interested in how do we lift people out of poverty how do we create a world where you know your background isn't destiny where where you can have a decent life uh, wherever you're from yeah perfect so i guess our first question for you how will covid19 affect the future of young people in the uk and why would you say upward mobility is so much more difficult than it has been in the past so the research that i've been involved in has looked at the number of school days school weeks lost over the pandemic and we estimated it could be at least a half of classroom days missed for, for most pupils. That is particularly affecting those from poorer backgrounds. So, so in social mobility, you're always interested in the socioeconomic background, however defined, of, of the people you're, you're thinking about. So if they're losing disproportionately more education than those from uh, richer backgrounds, then that's going to be bad news for social mobility. And that's indeed what we predict in one of our research papers. We predict a 20% decline in social mobility for generations under the age of 25. So that just means it's going to be even harder to climb the social ladder if you're from a lower social class or income background. So I'm afraid the pandemic is going to hit us in terms of generational uh, change. Interestingly, when you compare Britain or the UK, to other countries, we do better than some, but, but, but others are far worse. If you look at America, it's got about twice the learning loss that we've suffered on, on average. You know, I would argue that if you're, you have low social mobility, that's, that's bad for the economy as well as fairness, if you like, in society. So you know, how that plays out globally is going to be quite interesting, I think, for those countries that have suffered greater learning loss than others. You know, growing up in, in Tower Hamlets, I was, I, I of course, grew up next to my school and having spoken to some of the teachers, and I made active effort to do so as a governor and, and in taking other roles. The challenges for parents that have, for example, one laptop amongst three children will never really be understood without those looking through the, the understanding of like social class or so the socioeconomic factors that people live within. And the question, I think, maybe as a follow-up to you on that point, was there much done? from a policy level to address those difficulties or was this just more an ad hoc, we'll see what we can do and schools really doing what they could? Great question. You know, one of the things that I think about a lot is the role of schools. So some of my work with schools is about improving classroom teaching because we know that teaching is the one thing you can do within schools, unsurprisingly, that can benefit all children. So I do a lot of work on that, but I also do work on what are you doing as a school for your local community? And the reason why I'm interested in that is that we know from the research that, what, perhaps 60% of outcomes are driven or the variation in outcomes are driven by outside school factors. So if you can help children, you know, eat sleep properly, come to school prepared to learn, you know, you're going to make huge advances in terms of particularly those from, from poorer backgrounds improving their, their learning. So, so this is something that I was always interested in pre-pandemic. I think during the pandemic, which we're still in, I think it really exacerbated and exposed the inequalities that were already there. So we saw pictures of, you know, head teachers bringing meals to, ch to children and things like this. I hope 
that, that it has made more people realise just the extent of poverty and inequality outside the education system. So, you know, it's about lack of internet access for poorer children. It's about not having study space. It's about having quite, and again, you've got to be careful, careful with your generalisations here, but often quite chaotic home environments. You know, and teachers tell me that they actually got to know some of these people better during the pandemic. I hope that lesson is taken on because I think schools could do more. The question from policy perspective is always how much can schools do, right? They've only got so many hours in the day, they've only got so many pounds that we give them in, in terms of budget can they solve all of society's ills you know to what extent can they solve all, all those things how far do you think hard work alone can lead to success in today's society in the sense that you know you mentioned in in your introduction that there is an american dream perspective that people often have when it comes to social mobility i.e someone who can't read or write being taught skills and then eventually working in a post office and becoming the manager of the post office and then the up as the Secretary of State for like communication or something. How much do you believe that hard work alone means something in the society that we live in today? Hard work matters a lot, we know that, but it's only necessary, not sufficient, if you like. So, so you know, I worry about this American dream narrative because there are a few people, including myself, that have worked very hard and managed to get to the top however you you frame that but they're usually the exceptions not the rule and they're used as a way of perpetuating a system that actually makes most people feel like failures right so because because you know if you do the maths on this uh, there's only so many people that can get those positions at the top so we're, we're sort of given this dream and we're given these individuals that are the exceptions to sort of almost prove that it can be done but in doing so it makes most of us feel like failures and the truth is if you look at the home of the American American dream and, and you know, the United States is they have lower social mobility levels than many other countries, as does the United Kingdom, which has basically borrowed the American dream. So we we have a very individualistic notion of success here, and we borrowed that from America in many ways. And that, I think, is driven by this notion of the American dream. And it's a very individualistic sense of success. What's really interesting to me is, at the same time the American dream was born, which was about 1931, I think, from the books I've read, uh, there was another um, rule that was born in Scandinavia, and it was called the Law of Yanti. And the Law of Yanti is the very opposite to the American dream in some ways. It's, it's you shouldn't put yourself above society. You shouldn't be too selfish. In, you know, you should think about the group. It's a much more collective vision. The irony of this is that there are higher social mobility rates in the Scandinavian countries than the, the countries that promote the American dream. For me, so hard work is important, but you need help from other people. And if I look back at my life and I look at anyone's life, have been successful there are always people that have helped them out at different points in their lives you know we are all a product of of other people so i'm i have a very strong passion that we are as human beings a collective species and the the problem with the current assumptions around the american dream is that it's a very individualistic uh, notion and i guess when you talk about collective advancement kind of moving on do you think that universities and employers have a responsibility to ensure accessibility to students from all backgrounds and if you do think this then do you think that it's happening and do you think that it's kind of gone past morality and it should be part of mandatory policy? You know education is really important in all this 
But again, it, it, it's not sufficient to solve all these issues. So I think you've got to do something in the early years, preschool. I, I think we should have a universal, high-quality early years system in this country, as in other countries, so that every child at age five has fulfilled their potential up to that point. If you don't have that, then there's already a huge gap at the start of school, and schools are playing catch-up forevermore on that. But I also think it's really important after university, after school, that we work on these issues because what we found in the research was that even with the same degree from the same prestigious university, if you're from a less privileged background you're less likely to have the same earnings as your more privileged counterpart. You're less likely to be promoted, etc., uh, cetera, etc. Cetera. So there are barriers over and above education. Sadly, you know, education isn't the great social leveller that I think most of us would love, love to think it is. It does show its worth, by the way, in more equal environments. So if you look at Finland, for example, there were some reforms to education that made schools more comprehensive, less sort of selective... And that was associated with a rise in social mobility. But that was in an environment that was quite equal compared with the United Kingdom. So I think education can kind of show its worth if it's in a more equal environment. I think in countries like the UK, and I keep on mentioning the US because I think we're quite similar in some ways, I think education is counterbalancing the inequalities outside of the system. It's constantly sort of balancing those things. So what, what should you do in the workplace? I think we should be far clearer on how we judge talent, how we define talent. So what, what a lot of the studies show that, you know, what we tend to use is proxies for talent. So what do I mean by that? It's things that we do, usually middle-class things, that are perceived to be good. And someone who doesn't come from a middle-class background who doesn't have these things is perceived not so good. So, so how you perform in an interview, for example, whether you're dropping into conversation Shakespearean references is a classic, I always say. I mean, that's, that's particular to some of the creative industries that you see. But all these things, you know, inner confidence, because you've sat at a dinner table for most of your life and you're, you're able to make the sort of arguments that us three are having right now, if you have all those things, I think you come into the workplace and people perceive you as better talent, even though actually the job they're doing doesn't, don't necessarily need those particular skills. Now, some, some roles do need those skills, right? So, so I think uh, the other thing that, that workplaces don't do enough of is recognising the other talents that people bring from, from different backgrounds. And there's increasing evidence around the benefits of having diversity in, in any organisation, whether it's a newsroom, court, even in, in a hospital, you know, the decisions that you're making. And, and so, so, yeah, I think you should... The way you define talent and the way you select people, I think you could really look at properly. I think social economic factors should be part of diversity. I mean, you mentioned EDI earlier, earlier on. What I'm finding is a lot of global organisations have very good programmes about gender and about ethnicity, and there's a lot more work we've got to do on those things, by the way. But what's really behind in terms of is socioeconomic background. And I'm constantly trying to advise organisations on how you define that, how you measure that, because it is can be quite complicated and there's all sorts of academic debates about what the most robust measures but I think that we should uh, measure that in terms of just tracking how many people you've got as managers as, as board members in your organization just just so we know whether there is an actual issue you know you need you need data to understand whether there are issues in in these organizations what what's been 
promising in the UK context is that we've got organisations now that are, have targets for the proportion of working class people in senior posts for the first time in, well, my, my memory anyway. I think that's really positive. I think that's moving it in the right direction. Ultimately, I think you've got to change the culture in companies, right? And the reason I say that is social mobility debates 10 years ago was all about shoehorning people like me from basically working class backgrounds into middle class cultures. And that basically, like me, you know, you can hear my accent, my accent has got posher as the years have got. I know I am talking to you in ways that I would never imagined 30 years ago. I have become the middle class Lee. So I've gone from working class to middle class. And when I meet my old friends who didn't go to they always they like they, they say I sound like Tony Blair. You know, they they think I'm sort of I've really gone to a different place. And so yeah, the the, the kind of model was let's shoehorn these bright working class kids into middle class robots in some ways uh, and you spend a life pretending to be this thing and sometimes you enjoy it and then you go home and you're like oh, you, who am i am i this middle class am, am i am i still working class leader <laughs> I mean, yeah you're this awkward climber and a lot of us feel this a lot of us feel imposter syndrome i think where we're going with this though is a, an attempt at least to challenge some of the dominant cultures in these organizations and that means you've got to really think about what everyone does what are the norms is in your organization what is is the chief executive going to back this you know and i think that's that's harder but i i think it's good that we're having those discussions because what you want actually is a more inclusive culture it's really interesting to me you know the idea of social mobility in many ways is is confounding it's 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 sort of challenging it challenges all your assumptions you know, it's not that we want a world where everyone is middle class that's not what we want right we want a world that is accepting of different class groupings or different cultures and different backgrounds. That's what we. That's the actual aim. I think too much of the previous decades' discussion has been getting people into the top positions, as we said, the American dream version, the turning these working class oiks into these polished middle class performers. I think we need to move away from from that sort of narrative. But then to provide somewhat of a, to, to play the role of devil's advocate, what about meritocracy? What about, you know, providing people who have the best grades and, 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 and the best skills with the best opportunities by, you know, by offsetting or by providing, you know, quotas, et cetera, et cetera, as, as some have suggested? Won't that damage our society's belief that the best should be provided with the best roles? So one of my favourite books is The Rise of Meritocracy by Michael Young, uh, 1958. It's a Pelican book. My own book, Social Mobility and Its Enemies, available in all good book stores online, uh, is also a Pelican book. So I'm very proud to have produced a book that is in the same series, ultimately, as this guy, Michael Young. The reason I, I like that book is it was a satire it was written in 1958 it was when sort of grammar schools were coming to the force the idea of being able to select talent you know academic talent was worrying a lot of people and the whole point of I mean so Michael Young coined that term meritocracy but it, it was a critique of that term and, and what he was predicting was that the elites in society would become even more powerful they were the meritocratic elites because they would be able to define what merit was right so when people talk to me about a level grades in this country you know and i i would argue that uh, an a level grade is as much a function of 
your background and how much support you've had as your, inverted commas, academic potential, right? So the meritocrats, in a way, do this card trick. It's like a trick, really, which is saying, look, it's all about merit. But what, what they don't really go into is how we define merit. So, you know, it's not simple defining merit. And so there's a lot of people who could get an A in an A-level group just because they haven't had the private tutoring you know, that other people have benefited from that means they don't get that, that as a higher grade. And now, does that mean they're not as clever or bright? No, it just means they haven't had as much support. So how you define merit is always the issue for me. And, and I think we've also become very narrow in how we, we measure that in, in the education system. So it's a very academic measure. It's, it's a summit. It's basically, we measure ourselves in, in the academic world on how much can we memorise a lot of stuff in a small amount of time, you know, the end of, sort of term assessment. Now, that is a particular skill. It's a particular... And, and some people are very good. I was quite good at that, you know. But that's not every talent. You know, there are other talents. There's creativity. There's being practical with things, being good with people. You know, these things that matter in, in life so much. So we define merit in a very narrow way, which I would argue tends to benefit those in higher social class backgrounds. And it just, you know, some people would argue in, in my field that, that it, it's a conspiracy, you know, that, that we define merit in that way so we can keep the top as the top from, from generation to the generation because they'll just invest more money in making sure they tutor their children to get those grades to get into the top schools and universities. There's lots of debate recently I've seen with some of the political philosophers talking about the sort of myth of, mer of meritocracy or the, the crisis of meritocracy. Really, they're talking about the same thing that Michael Young spoke about in 1958, which was uh, that, that it is a flawed concept you know, I, I think you should give everyone a fair chance. And, and I don't, you know, I'm not saying that we, we can't sort of somehow uh, assess people in different ways. It's just that we've cho chosen very narrow ways to assess people. Yeah, I guess my final point then is, and my question is, what does a socially mobile UK in the future look like to you? And what policies would you implement if you had the opportunity? It'd be good if we had an English Prime Minister who didn't go to University of Oxford, who, who, who went to university. Every English Prime Minister since the war who went to university went to Oxford. It's an amazing statistic in this country. So I think you do need some measures at the top, actually. I'd, I, I'd love to see a more diverse cabinet in all sorts of ways in 30 years' time, say. I think I'd want a, a Britain where we don't have... 25% of children leaving school that don't have basic numeracy and literacy. I think that is a scandal in this country. Uh, not, you know, not other countries have that uh, level of inequality, if you like, in, in education. And, and many of those children come from the same families who also didn't do well at school. So, you know, that for me has got to be something that we address and we could address. I think it's how many people move out of that lower income bracket how many people move out of poverty would probably be one measure I, I think how many people get into the top elites would be another measure so you, you'd probably need a few of these measures of success but I couldn't resist talking about the prime minister as well because I, I do think it's important the, 
one of the problems if you have a cabinet that all come from the same sort of backgrounds, and they all might be very bright and clever, but if they all come from the sa same sway of the society, they don't necessarily understand or empathise with those people who might come through further education college in this country or, you know, might not go to university at all. So, so if you have elites that don't understand that, I don't think it's good for policymaking. In terms of what policies I would prioritise, I think you've got to have... I keep on going back to this early years support. So that means, you know, we used to have uh, sure start centres. They're called children's centres now. They've been kind of decimated over the last 20 years. And I think every child should be supported in that early years phase because the gaps are so big. It's so depressing when you, when you look at the statistics of age five children in this country. So I think you have to go early years. I would probably look at, uh, and people are going to accuse me of being a Marxist here, but I'm not. I'm, I think you'd have to have some wealth redistribution. So we, we have huge wealth in this country, and um, I think we could utilise some of that wealth. And it'd only be a small slither of the wealthy elite, and I think that could be used to help on, on you know, in terms of improving opportunities for the all so um there's loads of other things but I, I think if you pushed me it'd probably be those two things at the moment yeah no that's incredible and i'm sure our audience would deeply appreciate maybe hearing your social channels or even some of the incredible publications you've put out there if there are any that you'd like to flag it might be useful yeah so the the book that um has become a a, a sort of i was going to say bible of social mobility but certainly a reference book is is social mobility and its enemies published by penguin and that's a few years old now, but that certainly is something if you want to look into social mobility. Um, I talk about the tale of the two Davids, David Cameron and David Beckham. Um, I won't tell you more than that. You'll have to read the book to, to get more on that. Um, the other book that I've just published is called The Good Parent Educator. As I said earlier, that is about trying to provide evidence for parents, to empower parents because in many ways they're the missing factor in this. So, so another policy I probably would have is every school should have a parent engagement plan. That should be an inclusive plan so that all parents are part of that. Too often it's the middle-class parents um, that, that, that come to, to get those things. So, yeah, those are the two books I'd probably flag up. Thank you so much, Professor Lee Elliott Major, and to my incredible co-host Annie Martirosian from our Academy. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both on this really, really interesting topic and I hope to host you on this podcast again to discuss where we've gone and hopefully the successes that we'll see in the social mobility sector moving forward. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end. And thank you, of course, again, for your support over the last four years of making this podcast. It's been such an honour to be able to bring this content to you. If you've liked what you heard, please do subscribe and leave us a review on whichever podcast app you use, because it makes it much easier for other listeners to find us. And if you'd like to keep in touch with the work that Chatham House is doing on the topics we covered today and on all other aspects of international affairs, then the best thing to do is to check out our website at www.chathamhouse.org. 
We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews and we may at some point have a bonus episode for you on the situation in Ukraine and some of the geopolitical implications of the crisis. Please do bear with us while we work out how to do this and in the meantime, keep in touch through our other channels for what Chatham House experts think about the situation. Till next time, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs>